Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Right now, we hope he says more than the president. Uh, Karsten uh, Breski with us with ING. Uh, thrilled that he could join us today uh, from uh, the ECB meetings. Karsten, why is the euro higher off of the Draghi comments? That is very tricky because actually Draghi didn't say anything. So it seems that uh, they still find him sounding hawkish, which honestly I did not. Because what, what he said is that there is still a big chance that we see an extension of QEB in yeah. September this year. I saw exactly the same of the 40 headlines or so that came out, folks. Karsten, that's exactly the one that I saw. Or can Mr. Mnuchin change the rule book and the calendar for Mr. Draghi? Apparently he can. Uh, I think that that, is, that seems to be one of, one of the reasons that actually that Mr. Mnuchin is pushing the ECB to actually sound more dovish in the, in, in the, in the weeks ahead. When we see this, and of course it harkens back to a legacy before Mr. Draghi, and certainly not within Draghi discourse, and that is brutal moves of Mr. Trichet, uh, 122 to 125-ish, is on the edge of brutal, isn't it? Or, or, or are we at a point where we can use that famous Trichet word? No, I don't think we're, we're, we're at the edge of brutal, to be honest. Um, you know, what, what you always have to look at, I think the, uh, the euro-dollar exchange rate s- somehow exaggerates the exchange rate moves. Uh, if you take a trade-weighted uh, euro exchange rate, the strengthening of the euro has been much weaker. I think it was only half the one of the, uh, the, the euro against the dollar, which puts it a bit into perspective. And we've seen earlier research by the ECB, which says that actually the ECB thinks the uh, a stronger euro has less of a negative impact on growth than it used to have in, in the past, I think, has to do with hedging activities, uh, more invoicing in euro, et cetera, et cetera. I look, so I, I think the ECB can live with it for a while. For That's the right where I wanted to go. And that's a perfect definition here of for a while. What's the exogenous shock that would get in the way of for a while? Um, the shock would be, I think, more more pushed from from the from the uh, protectionist side of the U.S. Um, somehow a continuation of the current momentum, which right. is clearly on on the side of the euro. So if we if we were to move to to one thirty, as you also remember from the past, I think the level of one thirty is more right. or less the level when you, when you start hearing French companies uh, screaming out. Uh, I think that would be the moment okay. when the ECB starts to react. Thank we greatly appreciate the quick uh, perspective of Carson Brzezinski of ING from Frankfurt. This is an annual visit. It is with a gentleman who carries the August title, Emeritus. Emeritus. He's been put out to pasture. That's what happens when you win a Nobel Prize, except everyone in the racket known as economics knows that Angus Deaton will never, ever, ever be put out to pasture. His important work with Anne Case over the last 36 months on America's inequality, on the shocking dying of the middle class and particularly white men 
has been exceptionally important. There's just no doubt about that. Whatever your politics, people have been moved by Professor Deaton's uh, work. Thrilled to have you here. You have a history, and I think of Robert Fogel and others, of actually looking at society. Is this another study of a screwed up, messed up nation, or is there something unique about this agony of our middle class? Well, I think it's a screwed up nation, but I think that, so one of the huge questions is why is it just um, white people? Um, it's actually men and women. And why are we not getting it in Europe? I mean, Europe lives in the same globalizing world. They have the same Chinese competition. They've had the same China shock um, that we've had in the U.S. But you just don't see the suffering. Um, and, of course, it's also a big part of the story is it's for people who do not have a four-year B.A. The four-year B.A. elite is sort of exempt uh, mm-hmm. from these catastrophes. And to be clear, you're not talking about, say, the top 250 schools, including a small school in New Jersey that is orange and black. When you say B.A., you're talking about general undergraduate degrees from any institution. That's the social divide. Four-year degree. That's all. So we're not looking at Princeton versus, you know, okay. the community college. Let's go to, let's go to the Europe, um, let's go to the Europe uh, model. Is this because of our Lockean individualism? Thomas Jefferson and others wanted us to be individualistic, and uh, as Professor Deaton, as you know, that's worked for hundreds of years. Does it now not work? Um, there's signs of it not working, and I'm very surprised. And um, you know, many of my friends on the left would argue it's because they have a much better social safety net in Europe than we do in the United States, and that's a serious argument. Um, my own view is that policy towards labor in the United States is much, much more hostile than it is in Europe. It's much more pro-corporatist, and the fact that the share of pro-corporate um, of um, profits and GDP, which has been stable for a very, very long time, has suddenly begun to rise. Um, the share of workers in GDP is is really falling. And there's no place, it seems, for people who don't have a BA. You know, since the recession, okay. all the jobs that have happened in America since the I'm, recession. I'm going to break in and make some news BA. here. Do you have any friends on the right? Yes. Oh, okay. It's a, we like to be fair and balanced. Uh, here, if I have a labor economist of the first order, say Edward Lazier of Stanford University, or I have a labor economist on the left, I'll let you pick who it would be. Maybe James K. Galbraith uh, down at Texas, Austin. They have a lot of common ground. Why is labor so weak and so permanently weak in America? I don't know. Um and that's one of the questions that we'd really like to know the answer to. It's not been permanently weak forever, but it just seems like a whole bunch of things have come together. Um, technology seems to be enabling firms to behave more like monopolies, to raise their margins. Well, let's flip that over. Is it a monopsonistic tendency? Folks, monopsonism is take a rubber plantation in Singapore 
that controls the price of the rubber they take in from the farmers. Now, it may not be direct monopsony, but is it those certain features, Professor Deaton, that lead to low labor power and no wage growth? Yes, I think so. I mean, look at hospitals. There's been a shortage of nurses for like 40 years. How could that possibly be? And it's because someone's holding down wages. And I think that's happening throughout. And I think that's become much easier to do. So how do you respond to what we hear? There's a job shortage in America. And a lot of people, including uh, full disclosure folks, myself say, geez, you just you just raise wages and people show up at the door. Does does that's, you know, Dornbush Fisher stars econ 101, right? You gave it. You gave the answer I would have given. People love to talk about there being a shortage of labor, but they never like to talk about raising wages. Why? Well, why do you think? Well, no, I'm asking why? Why, well, because, why can't we raise wages? Granted, okay, one percent real GDP, we can't. But even at a sustained two point four, two point five, we're above potential GDP. Why can't we get wage growth? I think some of it is because of the increasing monopoly power and the um, lack of competition in American industry. So it's much easier to have an easy life behind your IT-related barriers than it is to. Um, you right. know, produce more, to invest, to hire more people. Catherine Mann of Brandeis and uh, at OECD. She's now going to Citigroup very quickly here. Uh, sir, she would suggest we are seeing too much combination in American uh, business of the people at Davos. Is there a sense of the 1930s? Is Andrew Mellon alive today? I think there really is, and I think we have to worry about it. And I've been reading a lot of stuff about what happened in the 1930s. Right. As a sort of guide. To well, there's we a guy that now. came out of Princeton. Uh, uh, Bowden, help me here. B-E-R-N-A- Bernanke, that's it. Read Bernanke history, maybe that'll have a secret. He is a laureate, Angus Deaton, and very much working on important themes for all of America. Such movements in the market, uh, we thought we should bring in someone with some perspective on this. Robert Sinch, has held out a shingle at various firms, including uh, with Alan Schwartz inventing cross-asset research at Bear Stearns. He commanded the ship at Bank of America in too many uh, departments for a while and is now at Amherst Pierpont. Robert, since you have seen Brutal, is this becoming uh, is this becoming a Trichet-like Brutal dollar move? Uh, good morning, guys. I think it is. Um, and uh, the question is, does anybody care? Um, for those of us with a few gray hairs, um, uh, we can remember the 1987 stock market crash. Um, and there were a lot of factors going on then, flattening yield curve, almost an inverted yield curve, etc. Yes. But many people think that the precipitating uh, catalyst for that uh, was, in fact, a pretty public spat between uh, the U.S. and Germany over currency policy after the Plaza Accord and the Louvre Accord, and and the weakness of the dollar and the U.S. You know, indicating they're right. not really they were not really inclined to do much. So. The question is, you know, what's going on now? Uh, Tom uh, Keene in Davos as well. Uh, You heard what they were talking about, trade and so on. And, uh, of course, we're talking with uh, Bob Sinch of uh, Amherst uh, Pierpont, and he's been writing about import prices. That's all about trade. And I'm wondering if, Bob, you see any increase in inflation in the United States as a result of uh, weaker dollar and higher import prices. 
Well, you know, my, my colleague Steve Stanley uh, is looking for higher inflation for uh, for sort of the key measures to to, to get through two percent this year. Um, look, I, I don't think that import prices are a, uh, a dramatic concern right now. The the latest um, reading in December is that import prices for manufactured goods was up about one point eight percent year over year, and you say, well, where's the where's the pressure there? Where's the problem? I think the issue was you go back two years ago and they were down about 5% year over year. So import prices had been uh, or have been a, a depressing influence on uh, domestic inflation, and that's going away. That's not there yeah. anymore. So, so yeah, I think there is some concern as we go forward that rather than it being a depressing influence, import prices could be uh, right. stable to, to slightly higher. Bob, since just, just too little time here with such a busy schedule, very quickly, can you acquire the euro today long? Can you believe in a strong euro and initiate trades today? Boy, I think that's awfully tough. The, the momentum of the upside is, uh, is yeah. pretty substantial. And I would just note the long-term downtrend from the highs back in 2008 yeah. uh, comes in today at 126.90. So that's the key. There's your the point. Way. That's what we like. Bob Cinch to four digits. Where else can you get that? But Bloomberg Surveillance from New York, from Davos. It is always an annual visit. We speak to him through the year, but there is a wonderful tradition of the value add of Daniel Jurgen of IHS Market, of course, their vice chairman, and of course, the acclaimed author of The Prize, uh, and a modest book called Commanding Heights, and another one, The Quest, and others. Is there a new book coming out? About 60% done. 60% done. Right. That's the title of it? Actually, that might work. That, that might, might work, 60%. Percent. Yeah, I think that was a whole self-help book. You That's could take the fire and the fury, but yeah. that one's already yeah. gone. Pim yeah. Fox in New York. I'm Tom Keenan Davos with uh, Dr. Jurgen. Yeah. A few years ago, page 399, Commanding Heights, the new rules of the game. What are the rules of the game we will hear from President Trump tomorrow? Well, I think there are different rules of the game. Obviously, he's here. He's going to dominate the dialogue. Uh, he's going to challenge, I think, what President Xi Jinping said last year here. Uh, and he's going to talk about America first and a different view towards trade. And he's going to claim success uh, with what we're seeing in the global economy and in markets. Is it a clash of civilizations? Is it the death of the Washington consensus? Uh, that's a very interesting... I think... Uh, it, it, I think to some degree it is in terms of uh, openness, uh, kind of redefining trade relationships. Uh, and a lot of it is obviously focused particularly on trade with uh, with China. But, you know, Mexico, Canada, NAFTA, uh, all the contention around that. And yet so many people in America, whether they're farmers, whether they're uh, in the energy business, whether they're in uh, manufacturing, are very dependent upon this, this NAFTA system that's come into existence. Uh, Daniel Jurgen, I'm wondering if the expansion of uh, fossil fuel production, particularly in the United States, but also efforts in places such as Mexico, uh, and also the use of renewable energy, why is it then that oil prices and fossil fuel prices remain elevated? Well, first thing to say is that we're really at a historic moment. Uh, in 1971, the head of the Texas Railroad Commission, which ran sort of like pre-OPEC, said uh, Texas was this great warrior that had risen again and never rise again. Well, in the last four years, Texas oil production has almost quadrupled. And if Texas itself 
was a OPEC country, it'd be number four in OPEC. So this is uh, the rise of U.S. production is a hugely significant thing. And this month or next month, it's going to exceed what was a historic rate uh, hit in 1970. Uh, what's happening now is what you see in the strong global economy. Uh, as uh, here at Davos, as Tom knows, uh, they, they've kept raising the global forecast for economic growth. Uh, we've had high demand numbers in our projections. Other people are now catching up with that. And you've had a lot of uh, this discipline by OPEC. There's some geopolitical risk reflected in Venezuela. And the financial markets are, are riding commodities and oil up. So all of those things. Uh, but I think the big question mark, and I've heard it a lot this week at OPEC and gotten that question a lot, is when we're going to start to see a, this new continuing surge in U.S. production. What's that going to do to price? So what you're seeing today is a price may well not be the price in two or three months. So how do you answer those uh, those questions? Uh, the question about why the prices are up? Yeah, well, think- also when. I mean, if you look at oil prices today, over $66 for West Texas Intermediate and indeed uh, natural gas, although not necessarily a global commodity yet, uh, almost $3.5 per million BTU. Well, I, I think it's it goes to those reasons, starting with the strength of demand uh, being really picking it up on top of it, which are all these other factors uh, that are at work. Mm. I mean, you know, it cycles. Prices go down. They set the stage for prices yeah. to go up. Part of the magic of the price, and let me state to those of you younger, I've got a royalty check that I still have in cash from Commanding Heights. I've talked it up so much over the years. I would suggest a rereading of the prize. It is how old is it, Dan? 20, 25? Over 20, yeah. Over 20 years old, and yet it's still shockingly fresh on the political economics of oil. And one of the great themes of the prize, which won you the Pulitzer Prize, is the idea of vacuums where countries and leaderships and nations pull away from regions. They pull away from spheres after World War One, whatever. Is President Trump risking here substantially a vacuum of pulling away from selected global relations? I've heard a lot from uh, Asian countries here that uh, the canceling of TPP uh, really has created a vacuum in China. Uh, as the natural economic dominating partner is is filling that vacuum, whether you're looking at the uh, one belt, one road, or just a whole trading relationship. So uh, <coughs> there is, that gets us yeah. the rising power versus the dominant Pim, power. I was uh, having a beverage of my choice after dinner, and uh, a gentleman named Fareed Zakaria walked up, and we talked and talked and talked. And really, Pim, one of the themes here, as the president speaks tomorrow, is almost a post-American world. Well, that could be, uh, although everyone's going to be listening for the U.S. president when he speaks uh, tomorrow. Yeah. Uh, Daniel, Jurgen, I got a, a question to you having to do with uh, the world's energy supplies. At a certain point, don't Iran and Saudi Arabia uh, have to call some kind of, I don't know, truce or some kind of uh, agreement so that they will stop sniping? Because isn't oil really all they have to export to gain foreign currency? Well, I think that's the case, but I think this is a profound, uh, this is a clash of civilizations between Iran and Saudi Arabia. Uh, What's so evident here is this new relationship between Saudi Arabia and Russia. And Russia is uh, is interesting, the only country actually, speaking of your vacuum, that can talk to Tel Aviv, can talk to Tehran, and can talk to Riyadh all at the same time. Can the president address Russia 
given his distractions in Washington. I think it's very difficult. I mean, any subject about Russia is, it's, Russia's turned into a domestic political issue as yeah. opposed to also the great power, great power relationship. We have so much to talk about. Daniel Jurgen with us with IHS Market. I can't say enough about the caliber of the research and their conferences. He has surrounded himself with the best and brightest, yes, in petroleum and hydrocarbons, but much, much uh, more. Pim, in the time we've got here, can you just give me one vanilla stock story? I was looking at Comcast. I saw, I believe I saw Brian Roberts last night. Give me a stock story, Pim, to get me away from Davos Babble. Oh, come on. Get into your, your tractor. Caterpillar shares. They are there higher right now. <clears throat> uh, strong sales momentum in 2018. And yes, they do use fossil fuel in order to power a lot of those farm equipment and manufacturing uh, well, equipment, you know, backhoes yeah. and so on. And, you know, everything that you're touching, everything that you see in Davos is a result of fossil fuel. It didn't grow there. Well, that's a good thing. Except for the snow. Talk about. When we invented Bloomberg surveillance and Bloomberg on the economy, and I'll tell you folks, it was something. There was a lot of pushback, thoughtful conversation with people, and I said there would be times where that would be appropriate. This is one of them in our many decades history. Daniel Jurgen with us. What an honor, Pim, to sit with Dr. Jurgen and listen to this unique moment at Davos and, frankly, unique moment in international relations. Daniel Jurgen, you have such perspective on this. I heard the words confront. Enough is enough. In the wilderness by ourselves. And at the end, the President of the United States spoke about respect. Soft power versus hard power. Is this a time where hard power can work for any nation and particularly for America? Well, it's certainly become more of the mix. I mean, the first striking thing, Tom, is the way... Uh, President Trump has stolen the show here at Davos. I mean, normally Friday is the day everybody leaves. Now he's building up and waiting for, you know, what is Trump's vision of the world? And Did we just hear it? But did we, Greg Vallier wrote about well, this, did we just hear that and that stridency? Yes, that, you know, that it's either you're, you're with us or you're not. I mean, not compromising uh, and being, you know, the, the same projecting onto the world scene. And, uh, it is, you know, eyes will be on this right. because this is such a global setting. John Keegan on World War I in Sarajevo. And it's fascinating how some saw it coming, but not really. And there's that, the, in 1939 and other points in our history, I, frankly, uh, November of 1963, where you don't see things coming, these exogenous shocks that upset hard power certitude. What are the kind of exogenous shocks that could get in the well, way you know, you're of so the right. Trump plan? In, in, if, uh, if the driver in, in, in June of 1914 hadn't gone, taken the wrong street, maybe there'd never been a First World War. Uh, I think you know, the type of risk that's there is a hotshot exchange in the South China Sea, I think is something, uh, you know, a kind of collision of uh, planes over the Baltic. There are these kind of things, and then this whole unfolding cyber saga. So, you know, right now, it's, you know, sort of almost divorcing from politics. Things are great, but the world can change overnight. The world can change overnight, and with that is an idea of control. Institutions want control in Davos. Elite CEOs like control. I mean, you have to run IHS market with so many others. Does the president have control of the discourse in any way? I think he has uh, 
seized it. He's changed the norms. He's changed how you talk to nations and so forth. But he's not in control of all the events. Uh, but they're talking back euro printing 125, yen 108.96. Some would suggest these are brutal currency moves. Is the market, is one example, going to talk back to Trump certitude? Well, I think right now what you have is this enthusiasm. If you remember last year here, Tom, the you, you, American CEOs were pretty excited because they thought there'd be tax reform and no more regulation. The Europeans were totally distraught because it was the end of globalization. Now, from a business point of view, everybody said, this world is kind of cooking. It's doing really well. But uh, the question <clears throat> now the question you hear is, what's, what is the unwinding going to come? In the, in the time that we have left, we have to go to the research of IHS market. The dollar oil dynamics, Brent, 70.79, that European global price, $71 a barrel, I'll round it up. What is that linkage in the modern day of weak dollar and oil? You know, sometimes there's not a linkage, but sometimes there's a very clear linkage. And I think we can see that in oil and we can see it in other commodity prices, weaker dollar, stronger commodity prices. Okay, one more question. I know you've got to move on to the top of the hour here in the Congress uh, Center. Secretary Tillerson uh, a very different Secretary of State than the John Kerry we saw in the hallways here uh, uh, yesterday. What would you like to see from Secretary Tillerson in this tumult? Well, I think, I think uh, first of all, greater cohesion with the State Department, I think, would be... Your uh, reports very, are the you, halls are empty. Well, the the halls are, are em empty. Uh, obviously, uh, right. you know, he's a very seasoned guy internationally, but, you know, we see a, a lot of jobs are just not filled. The institutions aren't working well you said the book is 60 percent done so if you do 10 percent of it on the next airplane flight that's, that's <laughs> I've, given up, I've given up right an airplane <clears throat> flight that's when worst place to write <laughs> okay i failed at that daniel jurgen in an annual visit uh, to davos D davos we are honored he is vice chairman ihs market thanks for listening to the bloomberg surveillance podcast Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.